Gracious Father, we stand in silence awaiting to hear your voice. So send your Holy Spirit now to illumine your scriptures for us, that we may walk on the path that you have ordained for us, that our faith would be built on nothing but your power. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Are you happy in Jesus today? Do you believe God has a word to speak to us today? Amen. I believe that too. I heard, saw a news clip uh, the other day about an angel that was caught on a security camera over a truck in someone's driveway. Did anybody see that? Anybody else see that? I, it looked pretty real. I mean, I don't know what to make of stuff like that. They showed it on the screen. It was a news clip on some Fox News clip, but it looked real. It looked like there was, a, you know, I always say angels don't have wings, but maybe some angelic creatures do, but it looked real and it almost looked like there was kind of like a sword of light. Like, I mean, it was, it was pretty awesome looking. Um, I don't know what to make of that stuff. I, I do believe angels appear and they do. They are in our midst. There's a, there was a poll done in, in that news uh, piece about uh, angels' existence. And it said 72% of people who took the poll believe that there are angels, that they're, they're, that they're around. Now, how many of you, if you had the chance, would choose to see an angel? Who would choose to see an angel? Some of you probably have. It is possible. Um, now, what about this? What if you could get transported to heaven right now and see it all without, you know, dying suddenly? Would you do it? Would you go look at all of the glory, get a glimpse? I would. St. Paul says he was taken up into the third heaven, whatever that means. And uh, he had a vision there. So it's possible. It's possible. Now, what if you could see God? Would you choose to? Sure, someone said. Moses and Abraham and others did. So it's possible. Now imagine this. What if you had the chance to actually have God himself, Spirit, God, the Spirit of God, His very Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, come and live inside of you? Imagine that. Would you take that up? Y'all are awake today. (laughs) You would take him up on that for him to be there all the time, every day, every hour, every moment, living inside of you, giving himself to you, sustaining you, and, and working through you with his very own power? Yes, beloved, and that is what we have been given. Isn't it funny? We think we seeing an angel would be an amazing thing, and we forget that the creator and commander of armies of angels lives inside us desires to live inside of us and live his life out through us. Wow. Not only is it possible, the Bible says it's for every believer in Jesus. That is a reality for every believer in Jesus. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 today, which we actually had the whole uh, chapter given us, all 16 Verses in the reading and that's uh, I wanted that longer version in there because there's some stuff at the end of the chapter That is really important that I want to touch on but let me give you some context so Corinth the city in which Paul is preaching was uh, fairly notorious in the ancient world as kind of a Ancient world Vegas if you will it was a naughty bunch of rabble-rousers sin and immorality abounding 
And so it's a miracle that the gospel has taken root and there is a church of believers there. That's the power of God at work. And Paul has established a church in Corinth and he's writing to them. In the context of what's happening, the problem is forgetfulness. Everybody say forgetfulness. The the Corinthians had become puffed up in their pride because of the spiritual gifts they saw among them, the miracles that they saw happening. And they began to embrace the spirit of the world, or what we might call the spirit of the age, which says everything should be built on honor and nobility and the wisdom of the world. And so they were really attracted to all the Greek and Roman philosophers around them, all of the sophistry and all of that stuff. And they were beginning to get puffed up and they had made an accusation against Paul that he wasn't all that eloquent of a a rhetorician. He wasn't that good of a preacher, is what we'd say. They made that accusation because they wanted to hear some nice, eloquent, philosophical, ear-tickling sermons. And so Paul is heard, got wind of this, and he's addressing that issue in this chapter. So that's the context. He reminds them, and he says this in verse 1. I'm reading out of a version that's just slightly different than the one in the bulletin. He says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's not ashamed of the fact that he didn't preach with lofty speech or wisdom. Not at all. He is reminding them that they were converted under his proclamation of the gospel when he was not using eloquent speech or lofty worldly wisdom. And then he says this to them, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you, this is the center of Christianity. You see, Paul says that was the only message I had, Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, that's the only sermon that heaven is concerned to preach to us. That's the only sermon that the father in heaven is concerned to preach to us is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because if anything's founded on anything else other than that, we have missed the center of our faith that our Messiah has come and has died for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You see, there's power. This is what Paul's saying. There's power in the weakness of the cross. This is how God's kingdom works. It doesn't work how you think. It doesn't work how earthly kingdoms uh, work. He uses the meek and the lowly to demonstrate his power. God uses the meek and the lowly to demonstrate his power. Uh, A.W. Tozer, old favorite author of mine from the early 20th century, he said, the cross stands high above the opinions of men and to that cross all opinions must come at last for judgment. You see, the Corinthians needed to be reminded That it isn't through sophistry or philosophical arguments that people are converted to Jesus Christ. It's through the cross and the power of God. Now, in verse 4, Paul says this, moving down a little bit. He actually admits, he says, when I was with you, I was in fear and trembling. I was weak. You know, my knees were shaking a little bit. I'm just not, he's like, I didn't have anything to offer you in my own strength. But he says this in verse 4, My speech and my message or my proclamation were not in plausible words of wisdom or lofty words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Say, of the Spirit 
and of power. Now, why does he bring this up? Why does he find it so important to say this? He's going to tell them. Verse 5, so that. This is big. This is the reason, Paul says, I must remind you that I preached in the power and in the Spirit of God. And that's what caused you to come to Christ. He says, so that. And then what does he say? That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is extremely concerned that the faith of any so-called believer would rest on anything but on the powerful work of God himself. He's deeply concerned that the Corinthians are missing it. And so he reminds them. You see, so many people today, in our own day and age, they want to hear eloquent preachers who will tickle their ears, make them feel super good all of the time. How many people have you heard? How many people have you heard? Say, I want a preacher who will preach in the power and in the Spirit of God, whose sermons will convict me of my sin so that I can draw closer to the Savior, whose sermons will actually spur me on to go deeper into my prayer closet and live a life of anointing in the Holy Spirit. How many people do you know that are crying out for that in our day? We say, no, oh, I love him. He's so funny. He makes the best jokes. I mean, I I do in reality, but... That's not bad. It's not bad to have an eloquent speech or to tell jokes. But you see, what, what we need and what our faith must be built on is a proclamation of the gospel that stands on no other foundation than the power of God. You see, it's only the power of God. It's only the power of God that tenderizes the hardest of hearts. It's only the power of God that stirs the affection of sinful man and brings him to repentance. It is only the power of God that makes the sacrifice of Jesus a reality to our hearts and minds. And it's only the power of God that gives us a sense of God's majesty and holiness and a deep sense of our need for someone to make us worthy to stand before him. You see, it's these things that make the gospel good news. That Jesus Christ died that we might stand worthy before him. Pastor David Platt, he says this. He says this is challenging. I find this challenging. He says, let's be honest, brothers and sisters. We have created a whole host of means and methods for doing ministry today that require little to no help from the Holy Spirit. We don't have to fast or pray for church to grow. We have marketing for that. We don't have to pray for the crowds to come. We have publicity for that. But it is possible, dangerously possible, for you and I to carry on the machinery and activity of the churches we lead. And it can be smooth. It can even be successful. And we'd never even notice that the Holy Spirit is absent from it. See, it's possible. There are churches, masses of people who are missing the power of the Holy Spirit. Their, their, Their faith, their growth is built on something other than the power of God. That's a tragedy. And Paul says, never forget. Never forget the power out of which the gospel grows. Now I want to kind of move down into the, to the end of the passage and hit a couple things that Paul says. He, he, he continues on in the middle of this passage. If you, you meditate on it and read it throughout the week to talk about how God has imparted us to him, to us a wisdom of the mysteries of God that he's revealed to us everything that we need for knowledge of Him and relationship with Him through the cross of Jesus Christ. He says it's that simple. That's where real knowledge and wisdom come from. From the weak, powerless, 
seemingly powerless in the world's eyes, cross of Jesus. Now he says this in verse 14, moving down uh, towards the end of the passage. Because you see, he, he knows that there are some people in the, in the midst of the church, their faith has been built on something else. They're clicky. They're, they're, their faith is built on something other than the power of God. And he calls them unspiritual or the natural person. So he says the unspiritual person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. The things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to an unspiritual person. When there's a movement of the Holy Spirit and there are scoffers on the sidelines saying, what is this idiocy? That's an unspiritual person. Because these things cannot become a reality to any of us unless the Spirit of the Lord dwells in us and opens our hearts and opens our eyes to see and to discern. Paul says these things are spiritually discerned. Natural man in his wisdom can't notice and recognize and yield himself to the things of God. It must be the power of God that stirs in our hearts that enables us to do that. And so he says this, the spiritual person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly, they're foolishness to him. He doesn't know, he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I don't know about you, but that, that gives me pause. That makes me think, am I walking a life in the Spirit? That I'm actually discerning the, the things of the Spirit of God? Or am I natural? Am I unspiritual? Do I, am I missing what God is doing all around me in the world? Nobody wants to miss that. You see, the evidence of being indwelt by the Spirit of God is that you understand spiritual things. You're sensitive to when the Spirit of God is moving in a place. You're sensitive to that. Your heart start, starts to stir. You know that the Spirit of God is moving. You see, Paul calls those who are uns- who he's referring to, who are unspiritual, is essentially unbelievers. He says people who are unspiritual are unbelievers. They do not have the Spirit of God. Now, here's, the, here's what Jesus says about this in John chapter 14. He says, The Father will give you the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You see, it's the Father who, who, who gives us the gift of His Holy Spirit to enlighten, to open our eyes and our minds to see spiritual realities, to be sensitive to what He's doing, sensitive to His voice, to, to, to live and to be so convicted that we must live under the life-giving authority of His Word. It's only the Spirit of God that can do that. Here's what Paul is telling us in this passage. The only way to know the true God and to understand the things of God is to be filled with the Spirit of God. To know and to understand requires being filled with His Spirit. Paul says this in another place in Romans chapter 8. He's talking to believers. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. That's, those are big words. Paul, Paul didn't hold anything back. But he wants us to see you see, you see why I preach about the Holy Spirit so much? It's the Spirit of Jesus. And, and Paul tells us that, that His indwelling us is actually the determining factor of whether or not we are Christians. Right? He never says, if you do good works, that's the evidence that you're a Christian. Now, that should be part of the evidence that, that we do good works. 
never says your, 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 the evidence of you being a Christian is built on your church attendance at Holy Communion. He says the evidence for those who belong to Christ is that they're indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. Now Jesus said this. He was going to... He was speaking at a feast, at a feast of Jerusalem, bustling and hustling with tons of crowds of people. And Jesus gets up and it says, he says in a loud voice, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Say flow. It's not a stagnant pond. It's rivers of living water because they flow out of him and into us. And then John tells us in this passage where Jesus says this, he says, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. I don't know about you, friends, but I want rivers of living water flowing out of me. That's how I want to live life. I don't want to live in a dry and barren land where there is no water, where the Holy Spirit is far from me because I have not yielded myself to him. You see, the Holy Spirit is a person. You must remember, it's the Spirit of Jesus who desires relationship with us. You can address and talk to the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of Jesus who wants intimacy with us, who who comes into our hearts. And Paul says, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. What's another evidence is that we have an assurance and confidence that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit does that. It cries out within us, Abba, Father, is what Paul says gives us confidence and assurance of our salvation. You see, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Remember that? He washes his disciples' feet. Now, if he were here in this room today, who of us would refuse that? You don't want to refuse that. Peter tried and Jesus scolded him. Not one of us would refuse that if he walked in the room. But you see, he also clothed his disciples with power from on high. And we can receive that or say no thanks. You see, I was walking at um, this park, Lake Concord Park in Castleberry the other day, just having an, an hour to myself out in the afternoon and praying. And I was walking and I'm thinking about the sermon and I'm walking along. There's a boardwalk there if you've ever been there over the lake. And I'm walking and I, and I look over the edge and I'm kind of slowing down and I'm looking at the wildlife. And I see these two ducks, and they're these beautiful black and white ducks, but they're napping. And you know how ducks, they, they're, they're, they turn their necks backwards, and they kind of bury their head in their feathers. Don't you wish you could do that, like on a plane ride? They, they were sleeping like that. They, you know, their head, they were just kind of turned in on themselves, you know, just to sleep. And then just a few feet away was an Eninga. You know what Eningas are? They're the black ones that are always sunbathing with their long necks. And he was turned up like this towards the sun with his wings out, just drinking it in. I felt the Lord say, this is a picture. This is a picture. There are sleepy Christians who have not opened up themselves and yielded to the power of my spirit. And then there are those who are like this. Shine on me, son of God. Pour your spirit into me. I want it all. I want to drink deep from your wells. It's just this this striking contrast. And the Lord, His heart, His fatherly heart, is that all of us would remove our head from the feathers and just open up to everything He wants to pour out on us. Amen? Let me just share with you a quick story from the book of Acts. 
This is how we know that our, our faith is built on the power of God. It's by the indwelling of the power of God in the person of His Holy Spirit. So in the book of Acts, chapter 8, um, Philip is in Samaria. And he's proclaiming the gospel. And it says, Many signs and wonders were done through him that many believed on the name of Jesus. Very effective evangelist, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the apostles in Jerusalem, which is quite some ways away, hear that in Samaria that the gospel has has exploded. And so the apostles in Jerusalem, this is what it says, the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So they sent to them Peter and John. So they've received the word of God. They have become Christians. That's what the text is telling us. But you see, the apostles heard about this and they said, we need to go and seal the deal. There's something else that needs to happen, right? There's believing, there's baptism, but there's something else that needs to happen. And so they got in the Ferrari and they they went. And it says, Peter and John, they came down and they prayed for them, the Samaritans, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. Because they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. There was something else. You see, it's a package deal. The grace of God penetrates our hearts and stirs our affections to open up and say, I'm a sinner, I need you, I want you to be my Lord. And and, and His grace comes in and transforms us and He makes us a new creation. And then we believe in Him by faith. And then we, we go through the symbol, the outward symbol and reality of water baptism. And we come out of the water. And then the deal has to get sealed. And so the apostles come and they say, let's finish the package now. And they lay hands on them. And they pray for the Holy Spirit to fall on them. And you know what? Powerful things happen. You know why you can tell? Listen to what happens next in the story. There's this magician guy, Simon, who's been kind of following the apostles around and is interested in what they're doing. And it says this, Now when Simon saw, everybody say saw, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, the apostles, saying, Give me this power also. Say power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Something powerful happened. It caused a magician who who had some spiritual power himself from the the dark side to say, Whoa! Something happened when those guys, those Christians, laid hands on those other new Christians. There was evidence of the power of God. You see how important it was for the apostles? They went miles and miles and miles to Samaria to to make this thing happen. This was huge. Remember Jesus, he says to his apostles, go wait in the city until you are clothed with power from on high, for you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's a spirit-filled life, friends. You see, the Lord Jesus... The one, the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit and fire, he looks at us with passion in his eyes, eager to give us himself. He's looking for, for aningas to, to go like this. He's looking with passion in his eyes, with, with fire, the fire of heaven in his eyes. 
I had this word in prayer the other day. I was praying and I was reflecting on, on the things that God has done in our midst in the last year. And I was thinking about the, the healing of MRSA and the headaches and all of these things. And I felt the Lord say so clearly to me, I've given you a taste of who I am that you might hunger for more. That, that's God's word to us today in, in this place. Let's just let everything else on our minds and on our hearts and our phones and everything else just fall away for a minute and hear this. I've given you a taste of who I am that you might hunger for more. That's a good word. That's a God whose nature is to give and pour himself out on his people because he wants communion with them. Intimacy. And he wants us to walk in power. You see, being a spirit-filled Christian, it's for everyone. It's for every believer. I think I've made a pretty strong case from the Bible today. It's for every believer, but you see, you have to believe it. You have to believe what the Word says. And you, so some people see all those spirit-filled people, they're kind of the, the crazy ones, and they do all this speaking in tongues and prophecy and all this stuff, and I don't know about all that. But you see, being a spirit-filled Christian is for everyone. It's just not for a select few. Whether you're a banker or a lawyer or a Disney character or a janitor or a computer scientist or a retiree. You, you don't become some kind of freak who goes around with a megaphone saying, Thus saith the Lord! No, you take the Spirit of God into your vocation, into your circles, into your neighborhood, and His presence will begin to change the atmosphere around you. And miracles will happen. And people will come to call in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because His Spirit's ministering in and through you. I'm hungry for that. I want to be hungrier for that. I want to be hungrier than I am. Isn't it easy for us to get so consumed with all the stuff going on around us? We've, and our hunger starts to get focused on the things of this world that can only give temporary satisfaction. Would that God give us a hunger as a church to hunger for the more of Himself that He wants to pour out on us. Jesus said in our gospel passage today, He said, you're the salt of the earth, the light of the, earth, the world. Don't lose the saltiness. Don't hide the lamp under a basket. But you see, the lamp will never get out in the open unless we open ourselves up to the light of the world in all of His fullness and everything that He wants to give us of Himself. You all watch the Super Bowl? I know a lot of you were preparing for it last Sunday morning. I noticed. It's okay. We still love you. Bob Jones was a well, not from Bob Jones University, a different Bob Jones. He's a well-known prophet in charismatic circles in the Pentecostal world. Um, who, who, who spoke many things that came to pass. And so one of the things uh, that Bob Jones is known for is prophesying over a man named Mike Bickle back in like the 70s and saying, God's going to birth uh, a worldwide 24-7 prayer movement through you. And Mike Bickle is known uh, famously as the founder of IHOP, International House of Prayer, which is now all over uh, the nations of the world. And so many things that Bob Jones, uh, God gave him a, a visions of things to happen in the future. And I want to share... Uh, something with you um, that has really been kind of rocking my world. So in 1983, there was a Bob Jones was gathered with a large group of people at the in Kansas City where the founding IHOP uh, location is, and they were doing a 21-day solemn fast, and they were seeking the Lord for revival. 
And at the end of the, the fast, um, everybody was on the edge of their seats believing revival's going to break out any day. And to, much to everyone's surprise, Bob Jones, the prophet, got up and said to everyone, and he said, the Lord says this is not the time. So this is not the time when, when, when revival is really going to break loose and change this nation. And he said this, when the Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl, revival will break out. I'm serious. I'm serious. This was in 1983. Chiefs haven't been to the Super Bowl for 50 years. Do you not think God could use a national event and give a man a vision of it so that his people would see I'm ready to break loose into this nation and harvest souls into my kingdom? You know, I, I, I sometimes take things like that with a grain of salt, but then I was reading in 1 Thessalonians the other day, and Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And friends, I'll say this. There are signs of revival all around us. I'm plugged into this, this sort of realm and this, this network in the Orlando area, and I see it happening. The miracles are increasing. The Spirit of God is falling on people. People are coming to know Jesus in droves. It is happening. And about what Bob Jones said about this season of prophecy that he would never live to see, he's, he's, he's dead, um, is that it would no longer be a season of come, gather together. It would be a season of go. Say go. He said it would be a season of go. The church would go out into the world and walk in the power of God. Not with human wisdom, with the power of God, nothing else, so that the people who come to faith in Christ, that their faith would rest not on our eloquence, not on our personal giftedness, but on the power of God. I believe it. I believe revival is stirring. I do. In this nation, God is looking to renew His church, to, to, to bring people to a deeper sense of his presence, his holiness, and his majesty so, so that people who are living in opposition to him would fall on their faces and, and, and repent and turn to him and receive him as their father. That's, that's what happens when revival comes is that people begin to see who God is and his glory and his presence begins to rest powerfully in places on the earth. I've preached on this many, many times in the last year, being filled with the Holy Spirit. But I, but I haven't actually given the Lord an opportunity to minister to us in this capacity. So I, I'd like you to just, if you would just stand with me, if we could just stand as a church. Now, I, I believe that there, the Lord is stirring in, in some hearts today. And so I'd like if everybody would just kind of bow their head, close their eyes, and anybody looking around, this isn't a time to try to analyze objectively what's happening. It's a holy, it's a holy moment when the Lord uh, comes to visit us. And if you're feeling the stirring of the Lord in any capacity in your heart today, I just want you to kind of put your palms out in front of you, face up. And if you would, just, can we just pray this prayer together? Just pray this with me. Heavenly Father, we can all pray. 
Heavenly Father, you love me with an everlasting love. You proved it by sending your Son. You've promised to give me your Spirit. And I hunger for more. I ask you to give me more. To minister to me. And stir in me with the Spirit of Jesus. Father, I ask that you would minister to us now as a church, that you would pour out your spirit on hungry hearts. Just give you this space, Lord. We're still before you. We love you, Lord.